You are listening to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This podcast is hosted by retired corrections officer Mark DeWolf, who will discuss various topics prevalent to corrections, gay culture, arts and entertainment, as well as current events. Listeners need to be advised that this podcast will discuss situations involving extreme violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and murder. Details of actual events have been modified so as to protect the privacy of involved parties. Welcome back to the Gay Florida Man. This is episode 14. And today we're going to be talking about surviving different administrations. Now, working in law enforcement for 20, 25, 30 or more years, you're going to navigate multiple administrations. Policies will change based on case law, political atmosphere, technology, budget issues, etc., etc., etc. Part of the importance of surviving different administrations is joining a union. I know not everybody is big on unions, but it is imperative that you have some type of protection because sooner or later, things are going to happen and you're going to be under the gun per se. So joining me today is my good friend, former co-worker and union president, Vaughn. Vaughn, thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Mark. I look forward to this. Uh, you are always a pleasure <laughs> to work with, and uh, we had some good experience and good conversations, so hopefully this will uh, entertain some other people. I hope we had a lot of laughs. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I have to just throw this out here. So I've been married for 30 years this year, mm-hmm. and if anything happens between me and my wife, throw out a Star Wars reference there. If I de- decide to go to the dark side, you're the first one I'm calling because hey! you are a damn sexy man. I, I, I just got to throw it out there. Well, look at that. You know, I the gay Florida man always has room for two. I'm always on the apps. I'm always checking out what's out there. And boy, you would be a catch. Yeah, I, and I tell you what, I would put a ring on it. I'm going to tell you right now, I would, not right. Catch and, I would not catch and release, Vaughn. You're a very attractive man. Well, so. thank you. <laughs> you tell your wife that, that she right. got a good one. She got a good one. <laughs> Today's episode is talking about surviving different administrations. And when you do a career, of course, you you see directors come and go. And I don't know about you, Vaughn, but I know for me, for the longest time, like a director was just kind of like a picture on the wall. He was on the letterhead. And if there was some award ceremony, I go and they're like, oh, that's the director. And you could go years and never know who he was working in the prison. From your perspective, was it different working adult probation and parole and how the director's role was and how involved he was with you? I believe so, because uh, a lot of the focus in corrections is on the prison and the rehabilitation side. And, you know, we kind of go hand in hand with the prison and probation and parole a lot of the focus is trying to get the treatment when they're locked up and AP and P is kind of the thrown to the side. Cause we kind of take care of ourselves and we, we did a pretty good job just kind of managing what's going on for the first part of my career. And then things kind of happened and AP and P our probation and parole just started getting more media attention because of some of the people that were being released crimes that were happening. So near the end of my career, it was starting to get a lot of attention. Oh, wow. The news trying to throw blame or? Yeah, that, you know, we had some people, high profile cases where some parolees got released and committed heinous crimes and and they took a, a lot of aim at the parole agents or the probation agents. And so they started paying a lot more attention to probation and parole. Not the board of pardons. Shocking. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's another story. We should do another podcast on uh, <laughs> sentencing guidelines and, and addiction and all that. I've, I used to be a, the supervisor over our, our treatment center at an APMP. So I got to all sorts of stories for you. Oh, I know that there's that whole political game and, you know, there's limited number of beds. And so somebody has to get released. And I know that the caseload, what was the average caseload when you retired for an agent? 
when I retired was pre-COVID, like maybe two, three years before COVID. Mm-hmm. And so the caseloads uh, were kind of manageable. So if you want to say 70 parole cases is manageable, that's about what it was. And probations was about 100. That is actually outrageous. If you go to other states, they're around 50 and 70, like 50 parole and 70 probation. Okay. So, so we were for, higher. So for people that really don't understand this whole idea or have never worked in corrections, when you say like, you know, 50, 70, 100, whatever the case may be, there's different levels of security. So if you have, say, 70 people on your caseload, what's the average of how often you have to have contact with somebody that you're supervising? And I know there's different levels of security. Some are have to be seen more often or check in more often. What's the average or what's a good way to describe it? So there was intense, which is you had to have a face-to-face contact in the office every week mm-hmm. and go out to their home every and have a face-to-face every two weeks. Wow. So that, that was very rare to get intense parolees or probationers. Now, before we go that, there's a difference between probation and parole. Probation is you get convicted of a crime and the judge says in lieu of prison, we're going to put you on probation. And the judge has all the kind of control of the case. So someone violates, you send a report to the judge. Parole means they didn't do good on probation or they went from being convicted straight to the prison because the crime they committed was really heinous. The parolees have most of the time failed probation, went to prison, did anywhere from 18 months to 20 years or, you know, more in prison. Mm-hmm. And then they get the board of pardon grants them the privilege of parole. Right. So, so back to the levels. So we had did intense uh, high is once a month in the office, once a month in the house, you're supposed to have a face to face. Okay. Mo- moderate is if I remember why is once in the office and every 60 days in the uh, in the residence and i could say field because if you go to their employment that counts so you can do it like their employment their house you know kind of just checking on them and low is yeah low is once every 90 days contact okay okay so And, and, and i know that the way that the politics work it's like you see them every 90 days and then the guy does something that makes high profile news adult probation or parole haven't seen this guy for three months yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah it's and then there know. are those cases that uh, you have you know you haven't seen the guy for three months and he's a high and you're like well why haven't you seen him for 90 90 days there is but, the sometimes those problems where you cannot find them and you should have got a warrant for him and you just never did so there are times when the balls dropped. So it's not, not everybody's not a, perfect. Not a perfect system. Yeah. Back to the different administrations, because I think what we just talked about is going to be Im- imperative as we talk later on about particular people that ran the department. And a lot of times, or most of the times, you would hope that the people that oversee a department as large as the Department of Corrections has a extensive history in law enforcement and has somewhat earned that position. Yes. They're supervising both the Gunnison prison, the Draper prison, inmates that are housed, contracted to the county jails for bed space, and then all of the people that are supervised by adult probation and parole. It's a big position. Yeah. And in Utah, corrections is the largest law enforcement agency in the state. So they have the most sworn officers and they also have the most correctional officers. Wow. So. Now, I was hired in 97. The first director that I dealt with, or really didn't deal with, he was just letterhead as I went through the process of getting hired, would have been Lane McCotter. And he served from 92 to 97. I never had any contact and I didn't have, never even saw the guy the whole, so I, the whole time, because I started in 95. So he was still there when I started, Lane McCotter. I think that he had resigned or moved on in July, uh, the first part of July, and my start date was June 30th. So it was mostly 
letters in the mail saying that you've advanced the next step of the process. You know, you're hired. The next one is uh, Pete Hahn, and he served 97 to 2001. Then you had Mike Shabrias from 2001 to 2004. And then you had Scott Carver, 2004 to 2007. And then Tom Patterson, 2007 to 2013. And finally, Roland Cook for me, 2013 to 2018. Um, I don't know if you know this, but he went on to be the uh, Department of Corrections for Connecticut commissioner. And he was there for 18 months once he left. Yeah, I, I saw that. I it. And I, I actually follow him because um, with Roland Cook, we actually uh, kind of not really were friends, but we kind of could communicate very well together. Right. So right. you have all these different administrations. And for the most part, um, we had talked before we started recording today that, you know, for the most part, especially early on in your career, for me working in the prison, you, you started out with adult probation and parole, Vaughn, or did you start at the prison and then transfer out? No, I was on the two-year plan. So I started at the prison for two years, and then I okay. went to a halfway house for two years, and then I went to transport for two years, and then I finally finished up at APMP for like the last 15 years. Okay. Wow. You were everywhere. That's great. We were talking about the fact that a lot of these people, they're a picture on the wall. You don't really know them. They're on the letterhead. And you really don't get involved with the director because the director is not there unless there's like a photo opportunity. It's like a political position and he goes to meetings and he answers to the governor. Things seem to change at some point where they became more hands-on. And I know that for me, that would have taken place under Patterson. He was 2007 to 2013. When did you become more active with the administration, Vaughn? Patterson is when I really became active because that's when I became the union president. Prior to that, I was the vice president and I kind of would give input, but I would never meet with the prior in, you know, administration. So uh, Patterson, I started meeting with him and his deputy director. We'd have conversations quite often. <laughs> I could tell there's more to that story. <laughs> yeah. Pete Hahn, when he was when he first started, I was in the academy and I saw him and we were outside on a break during the pre-service academy sitting down at picnic tables and he came over and he talked and he was a nice man and then like I said you'd see him on the news or something or you'd see him with the governor but I really you know, other than shaking his hand, maybe randomly at some award thing or something. I didn't know him. I don't think I, I even saw an email come out from him. You know, that email was just starting around that time. If I remember right, you wouldn't get hardly anything from administration other than, you know, hey, thanks for doing a great job once a year during Christmas or something like that. And right. So they weren't, they, he wasn't really that involved. I don't think with staff. No, but you know, nice man, Mike mm -hmm. Shabrias. I don't know if you remember this Vaughn, but before Mike Shabrias left, he had, I think had done a, a good job trying to fight because one of the big things about the different directors is they fight to try to get compensation. They fight and try to get the legislature to compensate corrections because for years and years and years, they were overlooked and they could never compete with other law enforcement organizations, county jails were always paid more. And it was yeah. always this battle. And Shabrias, uh, do you remember this? That right before he left, he got a bonus for everybody put on yeah. their check. And that was a big deal. It was like seven or 800 bucks, I think. It was based on the time that you had worked for the department. Yeah. I, I think he also got us like an 11% raise, which was unheard of if i remember right it was a huge raise because we are on a freeze for forever under the other because of the economy and you know law enforcement wasn't treated very well mm -hmm. and I, i'm mm -hmm. pretty sure he got us an 11 percent raise that and that was a big deal shabrias i i do respect that guy his son worked uh commissary and he i don't think the kid was even 21 i think he was like somewhere between 18 and 21 but his son was really nice. I talked to him every week when he would deliver commissary. Nice kid. Then Scott Carver comes along, 2004. 
I did meet him. I do remember meeting him a couple of times, but again, it was just in, in passing or, you know, some photo op or some awards. Nice enough, man. You know, you shake his hand, you say something to him. He's not listening to whatever you're saying. I don't remember much about him. Yeah. Honestly, I know that it was kind of a controversial, he left the department and there was some controversy and this is available. If you, if you Google it, uh, Scott Carver corrections, he was kind of forced out because of an audit and there was some questionable things and favoritism and good yeah. old boys. Yeah. As, wasn't there an incident in park city too, on a balcony? Uh, is that Carver? Uh, um, you know I, who I'm talking about? Oh, I, I do. I do. There was a an, an part of the administration that, uh, from what I heard, and we're not mentioning names, apparently somebody felt the need to urinate off a balcony. Yeah. I don't think it was Carver, but it was someone in his administration. <laughs> yeah. And now I don't know. You know, he obviously pissed off the wrong balcony, and the person downstairs was not into water sports. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was frowned upon. That, that didn't look good. <laughs> not not a no. good look. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, where our our story really starts would be 2007 after Carver is forced out. This gentleman by the name of Tom Patterson is brought in. Yeah. Tom came in and I guess reading different articles from back in the time from the Salt Lake Tribune, the Deseret News online, you know, he's brought in to correct these mistakes made by Carver and clean house with the favoritism, the, the good old boys network Patterson's brought in and he's going to be the, uh, hatchet man. And he's going to clean up all the good old boys, which he did come in and start making heads roll because I know that he removed the current warden from uh, Clint Friel mm -hmm. from the head of the prison and brought in somebody new. I can't remember who replaced Friel, but I know that Friel was out and they offered him like a captain position, which uh, he didn't accept. He, he moved on, he retired, but yeah. And I think Patterson's downfall was who he chose for his deputy director. Cause that individual from my experience with the two of them pretty much kind of made a lot of the decisions from what I've seen and I dealt with, she made a lot of uh, decisions. And in my opinion, it was still the good old boys club. It's just a different set. Yes. Yeah. Well, now I just recently today read the, the uh, in fact, I will put it on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, a link to the article about Robin Williams and yes. about when she left the department and her career and what she had accomplished. And I know she was not the most popular individual. I never had a problem with her, but I know it's completely different with adult probation and parole in the prison. She still was very hands-on. And I know that I was questioned about some of the things that I had done from her through the, the warden that was in place. Yeah. She came from the chief at investigations to the deputy director. Okay. So, so she had a big investigations background and in my opinion, she kind of handed the hammer down in, in investigations. She was pretty stern. She, and if you read the article again, I'll link it. She, I think enjoyed that personality type of being a heavy. Yeah. She definitely enjoyed it. During the, you know, our interactions, she was always respectful and, but she did not like to be challenged when we would bring information, things up to her. Uh, she really got upset when she was challenged. So <laughs> uh, there was Those... one, there was one incident where uh, we met with them and said, Hey, we are having some really, some major staff issues. And if I think we even talked about it vote of no confidence, we uh, met them outside of corrections. And I think it was an Applebee's or something like that. We met them at an Applebee's for, for lunch. Mm -hmm. And uh, we told them, "Hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna back down, and um, we're gonna push through with some of these agendas." And she got kind of really irate because we weren't backing down, and Patterson was kind of like, "No, we're not backing down," but she did most of the talking. So that's why I say 
Robin pretty much ran the department and Patterson was the liaison with the governor and the legislature. It's interesting because the story I'm about to tell Vaughn was definitely not so much about Robin Williams. It's Uh definitely about Tom. And so bear with me because it's a little bit about story time. And when this happened, people were completely shocked. In 2004, 2005, I bought a bunch of professional video equipment. And over a period of three years, I made my own independent film called The China Buffet. And it took three years and about $15,000 out of pocket. But video production is always something that fascinated me. And acting for television shows, commercials, et cetera, and going through the auditioning process is fun. It's enjoyable, but there's not the level of satisfaction is creating. And so I had done this movie called The China Buffet, and I had this professional equipment. Well, in 2008, they were looking at ways to recruit because there's always been this issue with getting enough people. There's such high turnover corrections at the prison. And so I had been approached and said, hey, look, I'm going to go to the department and I'm going to talk to them about you filming a recruitment video if you're up for it. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got all the equipment. We could definitely do an amazing recruitment video. They approached the department and said, we got a staff member down here and he's got this video equipment and we can do a recruitment video and put it on the website and maybe show it at different recruiting events, whatever the case may be. They came to me and they said, will you do it? And I said, yeah. Yeah. And we sat down and we had some meetings and that started this long process of about a year to do this recruitment video. And we filmed every aspect of the department. We filmed all over Draper. We went down to Gunnison. We were actually downtown Salt Lake City. We were out in the field with adult probation and parole, and it ran about seven minutes, 20 seconds, and it's an amazing recruitment video. I was asked to do it, and so I started the process in 2008. Now, I was working as a sergeant in the Olympus facility, and I had some issues, some conflicts with some staff that I supervised, and it was best for both parties that I went over and worked in a different unit over in dog block. That's where I re, uh, finished the recruitment video. Well, over in Olympus, there was still continued issues with the staff and the sergeant that took over after me. And that turned into a big issue. And I actually got called in months later by the warden. And that would have been Turley. And he questioned me about events that happened at Olympus, even though I'd been gone for a while. In the process of that whole thing that happened at Olympus, my personal videos, because I was doing sketch videos and I had done the China Buffet, lots of videos that were on the YouTube channel that we would do. And it involved a lot of people that worked at the department. There was uh, case managers in it, different levels of uh, officers, you know, lieutenants, sergeants. I have to say, I've seen those videos and some of them are very funny. <laughs> it's it's an acquired taste. Bob. Yes, it's an acquired now, taste. Now I have to throw it out there. I am part of the dominant uh, faith here in Utah, and <laughs> and some of those videos kind of mocked that faith. Mm-hmm. So it, you know they were funny, but they're like, okay, yeah, that's pushing the line a little bit. Hey, there. It, right. It, <laughs> I and I admit, you know, I I definitely push to get a reaction. My sense of humor is it's an acquired taste. And I get it. I get it. And I know that a couple of the videos, I play a character named Ranger Rump, and I'm a scout master. And that is typically in a lot of areas connected to a church organization. And because I was involved with scouting, and I was raised Catholic and went to Catholic school, but there was no Ranger Rump that had his way with me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) But I know that those videos... You know, they definitely kind of walked the line. But the most important aspect to remember is that they had nothing to do with the department. Yes, Uh, exactly. There was no reference to where I worked, no connection to the state of Utah, nothing like that, even though that we did mock uh, religion, sexuality, very strong material. So that came up and HR was involved with the whole investigation. They were made aware of the videos. They watched the videos they weren't fans either. You know, they knew that I was well within my uh, First Amendment right to speech with those videos. 
And if you are interested in those videos, I'll do the link. If you look up Damien, D-A-M-I-E-N, 1995, no space, uh, you'll see a Doberman, um, a red Doberman. That would be the videos on YouTube. <laughs> That's where you could find those so you can fully understand this story. So those were brought up, but there was nothing that was kind of a moot point. Now, January 13th, 2009, the recruitment video is done. I'm working now in dog block. Everything is kind of like blowing over about Olympus. And I go up to the executive meeting up at the administration building on the other side of I-15 across from the prison. And I go in and all of the heads of all the departments are given a copy of the DVD with the recruitment video. We do a screening of it. Everybody thinks it's fantastic. This is amazing. Director Patterson gives me his coin. And as a recognition for my hard work for the year that I put into this recruitment video, and I go on my way. A few hours later, I get a phone call from somebody that was involved with that video. And they tell me, look, some things have come up. They're not going to they're not going to put the video on the website on Thursday. And I said, oh, well, well, what's going on? He's like, well, there's just, there's some issues. I'm like, well, is it because some of the people that are in the video no longer work for the department? Well, no, that's not it. And well, is it, is it the, uh, the music? Is it the editing? Like what's the problem? And, and finally this person says, okay, well, they didn't say that I couldn't tell you. Apparently, after the meeting was done earlier in the day, somebody went to Patterson and said, have you seen his videos on YouTube? And so they all go into some office and they sit down and they watch Ranger Rump. And like I said, it's an acquired taste. Patterson, I guess, didn't really think it was that funny. Instantly, I guess what I heard, and this is hearsay, what was said was, I am a discredit to the department. Patterson was very irritated. That's why it was put on hold. I was led to believe, like, we'll have to go back and look at certain angles or maybe re-edit it because my face is in the recruitment video. Very spooky time. Very disappointing. A lot of work went into that. It never launched on the website. Now, months go by, and finally, somebody comes down to the prison and talks to me and tells me kind of what happened, and the video's never, it's going to be shelved. It's never going to be used. Now we go to the fall. And so September 16th, 2009, I get an email and they want to recognize me. The administration from the training academy wants to give me an award for my help with pre-service training. And I thought that was very cool. I go in and I play an inmate. And as you already know from my personality, I probably play a great inmate and they loved my... <laughs> <laughs> if they loved my my acting abilities as an inmate that's out of control trying to spit on staff. They said, look, you do a great job. You do a, a wonderful job in this training classes. We want to give you recognition at the next time that there's an academy graduation. We want to bring you up and we want to give you an award. And I'm like, okay, cool. I go in and the next graduation, I go and I get this award. And now Patterson's at the graduation for the new class. And I get this award. Thank you very much, Bubba. And I go back to my unit. A week later, Captain Glenn Perryman comes down to Dog Block and he's like, Is there someplace we can talk? And I said, oh, Sure. So we go up to another tier. We're alone and, and he's mad. And he says, I don't know how to tell you this, but we can never use you for training again. I'm like, What do you mean? He's like, Patterson said he doesn't want you around the new recruits at all. So you're telling me I get an award for my job. And now you're telling me that I can't be around the new recruits. And he's like, yeah, he doesn't want you to be able to influence them in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Hey, I have to say, I've seen your, you uh, in those trainings because I, I was involved and came down and got to watch some of those. And I've actually seen you in work in that situation <laughs> when you're doing that training. You do a great job. Oh, and, I get, and, I get and the into verbal it. responses that you give them are great. I mean, you give them some really good feedback and kind of hype them up and make them think. So they did not take away crisis intervention training. The with us, with our department, sending representatives to talk about mentally ill offenders. They still let me continue to do that. It was just the pre-service. It was mm -hmm. just the, 
the new kids. We don't want this guy around the new ones because he's going to corrupt them. He, yeah. He's got his moral compass is broken because of those videos. So, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so, so that's and what happened was is that kind of like that left a very bad taste in my mouth. And you can imagine as a gay Florida man, there's been many flavors in this mouth, but this one really pissed me off, mm. and this made me mad. And so that's when I knew the importance of union representation, and that's when I had gone to the union. I had met uh, the union rep down in Salt Lake City and had gone over the details of the case because, of course, the department wouldn't answer me. You know, they would not respond to me on my inquiries as to why. It's just like, well, he's, you know, he's a sergeant. They would just blow me off. And so I had to go to the union and then the union started uh, hassling Mike Haddon, who didn't want to respond. And um, eventually he did. And according to the union rep, you know, they, they know that they're walking a fine line by doing this. Literally, it's not a position that I had trained or had applied for and been given like sergeant, lieutenant. It wasn't a rank position. It wasn't a titled position. It was just like they use you in training. You know, one month they might use this guy and another month. This, it's not guaranteed. They probably are okay to get away with this for now. But down the road... We don't know what's going to happen. And I thought that was interesting because people started acting real spooky, Vaughn. Mm-hmm. People started real acting. I mean, they they knew that I was causing a problem and that the administration didn't like me. Patterson personally did not like me. Oh, yeah. You know, talking to people, my name was Mud because I yeah. would have interactions with people and you could just tell they, like, there was somebody's somebody's retirement, a deputy warden's retirement. And I remember going over there and I remember like, it's like a great white shark moving through the ocean, an aerial shot and all the fish are going around the great white shark. Mm-hmm. And that was me. Nobody wanted to be seen by any administrator talking to me. And it was very spooky. The whole thing kind of went away, but I became heavily involved with union activities. And even yes. though Utah is a right to work state, it's imperative for people in our line of work to be involved with unions because administrations will do whatever they want. And I, and I think the union actually kind of change, helped change the direction of corrections a little bit. They used to be able to think they could get away with anything and no one challenged them. And then all of a sudden the union came along and we started fighting back and, causing waves up at the governor's office and they're like, Hey, why are, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Why can't you keep your house under control? Why are they coming up to my office and demanding my time? And so they, they've actually had to start working with the union a little bit once probably right around the time you started making waves. So maybe you are the catalyst for for the union actually to start doing pretty good because that's, that is when, we started making some real headways with the department. In Utah and the Department of Corrections, there was multiple unions for people to to choose from, depending on whatever you whoever you wanted to join. Yeah. And I, and I think it was imperative that there was choices, which is really good. Whoever you did choose to represent you fought for you. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them were specific to divisions. So some were specific for the prison some actually did everybody some included staff some only did law enforcement so yeah there were a lot of uh, different unions that you could uh, join but there's pretty much two unions that were the powerhouse behind mm-hmm. the whole things and at one time vaughn i was a member of both i was paying yeah. u- union dues to both because i knew that <laughs> they wanted me But it's also, it's interesting because at this time I was now out of the closet. It's kind of one of those situations where, you know, everything had happened with Prop 8 or or it was going to happen, but it was a hot button issue. And so to be an out gay person, so outspoken, and then he's into the theater and he's into the, the making the videos, this guy's a real pain in the ass. Yes. 
and I could say I, you were a pain in my ass sometimes because I had <laughs> to uh, go to battle for you. I felt like I was being the one that was should have been uh, going to the bar with you because I I felt like I was getting rear-ended <laughs> sometimes because all the stuff that you were doing. If I had a nickel for every guy that told me I was a pain in their ass. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> as as I look back though, you know, the unions were were really good and I think that the the Patterson administration, they played nice to begin with. Mhm. There's always that honeymoon period when you have an administration, but then there becomes this level of confidence like when you're talking about where they start to do whatever they want to and they think that they're untouchable. And yep. that was the problem with Patterson is at first he seemed to be open to different ideas and open to, you know, he wanted to be a good guy or at least perceived as one. He had, you know, Robin Williams, the hatchet lady that would handle stuff. They still seemed to be open to ideas. We did the recruitment video during the 2008, I think it was September was the financial collapse mm -hmm. because of the whole mortgage situation. And then they started to have that mentality of you're lucky to have a job right now. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely worked to their advantage. They played nice for a while. Then they got overly confident. Yep, they did. And that brings us to Patterson's last year. And I remember we were involved in a meeting up there at the Capitol during the summertime. And I remember um, uh, the executive director for the, the union demanding an ombudsman be put in place because of the decisions from the department. Do you remember yeah, that? I do remember that. That was a fantastic thing that he did because an ombudsman to oversee the decisions, even though that person still works for the state of Utah, but at least there's now an outsider outside of the department say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now look, you know, you got to be careful here. Yeah. It's and that was the first time corrections ever had one was in that and so it was kind of new territory but it's brilliant and it was it was long overdue yes it was you know and an ombudsman an official appointed to investigate individuals complaints against mala administration especially that of public authorities he worked in hr at least it's the starting point where you see an administration that feels like they're untouchable now you bring in an ombudsman to start to look at these decisions of what they're doing. And that was imperative. Yeah. In that meeting, the complaints had started to build up against what these people were doing. They were starting to run amok and do whatever they wanted. And it was out of control. The ombudsman getting put in place, that was only brought up because I remember, I think it was the chief of staff for the governor at that time had said, you know, we're not removing Tom. We got to take that off the table is the term that he used. Mm -hmm. You know, we're taking, that's not an option. And that's where I really learned the importance of person that knows the ins and outs of government, knows how to handle things, because it was shortly after that, that there was a vote of no confidence. Yes. And, and the, the governor did not like that at all. <laughs> but but uh, we presented it anyway. We knew that we were going to kind of make some waves and, but we we're, prepared to do it <laughs> it was it was a tidal wave against patterson yeah it was a tidal wave it did on paper and so the way that it was handled for anybody that is in a union if you need to do a vote of no confidence you know you want to make sure it's authentic it's real it's not people voting multiple times so you have to have some type of employee number to verify that each vote is from a genuine employee of the department they got everybody to vote, but verified that each vote was authentic. And it was, like I said, a tidal wave. I think only a few people voted in favor of the current administration. The rest said no. I, if I remember right, because I remember looking at those numbers, there's only between 15 and 30 people that said keep him. It had to be the total number, if I remember right, was right around 1500 votes <laughs> so uh you know 30 votes for and 1500 against you know yeah. something somewhere in that that and it was a meaning only people that knew who the people were were there was two people are 
director of the union and myself are the only two that had access to that. Wow. So well, that way we could keep it confidential. We said, this is, there's no way that this is going to ever get out. There's only two of us that are going to be able to verify it. So that vote of no confidence happens and that hits the newspapers. And then it's released about the lawsuit between SWAT transportation and Patterson because mm -hmm. they had an agreement under Carver that Patterson was not honoring. And so that whole thing was also hit the press that there was a pending lawsuit uh, with this grievance from these officers. And initially they were paid higher because of their specialized training with SWAT or transportation. They had this specialized training. It was, I mean, I understand why it was set up that way because those guys definitely get lots and lots of training. And I think SWAT, they would have to go to a SWAT school out of state. Yes, but that's correct. That happened uh, was the next thing. If I remember correctly, it was an election year, wasn't it? I don't I don't remember if that actually, because I can't remember that, that far. That all that stuff happened. And then and then Patterson resigned in December. Mm -hmm. That that article about Rodden Williams, I know, came out. She left earlier, I think, than Patterson. And mm -hmm. then Patterson left in December or January. And then that brings us up to Roland Cook. So this is the first time in history that a union was on the hiring board for the next executive director for corrections. And that just <laughs> happened to be me that was on that interview board. <laughs> so... Oh. So I know that the union had an issue with Carver and got an audit done because of his problems. And then Patterson comes in. He just thought he could do whatever he wanted to. So tell, tell me more about that whole process with. So, so I was the only line officer that was in that room. And then it was all executive directors from HR and the highway patrol and just all the division heads that were on this panel. I wasn't afraid to speak up and it was funny because they're like, who's this guy? He's in like a, a suit and he has, we have no idea who he is. And I'm asking all these questions about staff morale. You know, how would you uh, handle the staff morale? And one of my cousins was on the uh, interview board. So I had to accuse my, not the, the interview board, but he was being interviewed. If I would have played my cards right, I should have got him appointed to the director i could have gone a lot farther in my career with him being the director but i had to <laughs> i had to recuse you, myself on that one you did the um, right thing yes it was just a panel and they'd give them maybe five questions and okay tell us how you're gonna fix this and how are you gonna make the community safer you know just all sorts of just different questions like that and then they'd just rank them on how they uh how you think they should go forward and and uh, I, I knew nothing about these guys. So I, Roland Cook was like my number fifth choice uh, on there. So he, he never knew that. But now that I'm retired, I can say he was, <laughs> he was like number five on there because <laughs> he came from the sheriff's department and he had no idea about APMP. And that was my push is like APMP is like the bastard child because uh, we don't, they just say, hey, here you go, deal with this problem um out on the street that was my big push and so everybody i i wanted had some ex law enforcement experience that dealt with something more than just jails and you know how to house people so let me ask so, you this because at this point they knew they were going to be moving the the state prison to its new location by the airport was the main reason roland cook was brought in because he had moved the Oxbow jail to the current location. That was a big, that was a big okay. uh, positive for him, but it wasn't the main thing. He had some pretty good um, feedback from the sheriff's department. And he also had some bad feedback from the sheriff's department for like um, having kind of a hot temper um, at the sheriff's department. So he had some good and bad stuff from, from there. So, but I think that was a, big push for some of the people i uh, i'm just trying to find i'm pretty sure because i think uh to go back to what i was talking about earlier i'm looking at the dates and i think that patterson roland cook i think took over in january patterson retired in the first part of january so the election was 2012 so mm -hmm. it makes sense that 
everything kind of took place in an election year when we were yeah uh, when we were very active with dealing with those people roland cook i had met him several times and he knew that i mean i know that he was briefed about about the wolf they told him this guy is heavily involved with the union this guy does these videos because every time i met roland cook he acted like it was the first time i met him mm -hmm. and i had talked to uh somebody else that was involved with the union saying why does he do that uh the other person i was talking to said i don't know but it, it's probably because of of who you are and these people think they have a really high moral compass they're they're judgmental that's the way things are I could never understand. It's like this guy's in like the highest level of this department and he knows who I am. Let's not play that game. We've met two other times. Why do you do this? Like I reach out to shake his hand and he cocks his head and he looks at me and he's like, like he's trying to recognize me. Mm -hmm. And I said to his face, I said, we've met two other times. Like, why are you doing this, man? I just don't understand it. It's, and I know I've been told it's like, sometimes you're honest to a fault mark mm -hmm. <laughs> because it doesn't matter what position a person holds you're very honest and you're very much sincere with your approach yeah and i don't know but how did you think he did he started out making some good changes in my opinion mm -hmm. the closer i got to retirement and the more burned out i got i was as a union president i could see that his push was towards a prison everything he did was to get that new prison funded and built anything else that caused him issue kind of went to the sideline and he dealt with it but his main push was to get that prison built so which means that i think other issues kind of were left to fester and kept growing and growing because he was so focused on other uh, other things well, you know, when you talk about it, he had no knowledge of adult probation and parole, he only knows half the job. Yes. So I'm glad that you kind of had, or that you took issue with that. Mm -hmm. There was talk that, oh, we don't need a probation and parole doesn't need to be law enforcement. And I'm like, wait a minute, we go in there and arrest them. We file charges. We need to have that law enforcement. But there was a lot of push to decertify a lot of positions as law enforcement or correctional officers under him made a lot of staff upset. I don't remember if you remember the caseworker incident where they tried to kind of change the way those were done. And actually they talked about decertifying those at one point. I don't know if you, if you were involved in that or not. I was not, no. Yeah, but that, that didn't ever happen. So there's lots of positions that they, uh, tried to decertify to save money to try to keep their budget going well there was a big push one of the administrations and i think it might have been i wonder if it was carver or shabrias but they figure no it might have even gone back to pete hahn is if you certify the medical staff and offer them that retirement they're going to stay it's like a retention idea and same mm -hmm. with like your maintenance people and stuff like get everybody to be certified as a corrections officer and they won't make as much as they will in the private sector but they're going to have health insurance and they're going to have a retirement yep that's that's the ones that it was is the health department and the the maintenance and all those guys those those are the ones that they actually did decertify yeah uh, and that's that's what it was not the the caseworker it was the uh medical staff and the maintenance workers yeah yeah that was a big oh. deal yes i was yeah. i was uh, I was involved with that because that was just wrong. I mean, these people were given initially and they were given the opportunity. And was that, was that Patterson or was that, that was cook? That was cook. Yeah. Cause Patterson, you know, all the numbers were up and everybody was, uh, everything was doing good during the, during the financial crisis when there was, uh, a recession. Yeah. But, uh, Roland cook was trying to look at ways to, I guess, balance the budget and, get all these medical people uh, away yeah. from being certified again yeah but so you know you get hired as a nurse and it's like well you know you got a 20-year retirement now mm -hmm. but or, or 25 i guess because it had changed at that time yeah it went to a 25 
you know, you go in with this idea that you have a retirement, you're a certified corrections, and you also are going to get a high risk retirement. Yep. And, and he, so they gave them the uh, opportunity to go to a, a correctional officer and keep their retirement or they can uh, move to the new system. Now, so, if they did that, if they voluntarily went to a lower position, they're going to get a huge cut in pay. You'll get your retirement. But of course, with the way Utah retirement, the way it did work, it was the average of your top three years. That's correct. So interesting. I was gone before Cook was. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when I, did you retire? I retired in 17. So he had a year. I think he had another year after I retired, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. 2018 is when he left. Yeah. Yeah. I remember under the Cook administration, they did this big thing with the CERT team. Do you remember the problems oh, with yeah. that? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> they could not get people to even, once they started, they couldn't get people to volunteer for it after, after they got it established. So for people that are listening that have not worked at the department or didn't work at the department at that time, you have a SWAT team that's very well established. Initially, under Carver, you had given two or three pace steps to become part of the SWAT team. And these guys train all day long. They train and train and train in case of any type of major incident where there's a riot or a unit is taken over or a hostage situation. And then now Roland Cook comes in and he decides, well, we're not going to have a full-time SWAT team we're going to go to a cert team because that works at the jail. So it's going to work here. He's that personality type where he doesn't like to hear you give any type of feedback contrary to what he believes. When the, he decided that they were going to go to a cert team, there's going to be no increase in your pay, right? Yep. You're, it's just a lateral transfer. So now you're going to transfer into this position and there's going to be no financial incentive. And you're probably going to have to go through a period of chaos with training, learning a new job, all this other stuff. There was a lot of logistics that I don't think that Cook understood. You have three, you basically have three units out there, out at the point of the mountain now. You have your main site, your more of a north site and a northwest site. So, and your cert teams are going to respond to that. Uh, it's just not, it doesn't make sense. So you're going to have to have a cert team for all three of those sites. He didn't want to hear it. No. There was just this period. And it, this happens with, well, it didn't happen initially because I can't emphasize enough. When you have these different people that are different directors, they come in and they're just kind of like a figurehead. But then you start getting these people like Patterson that have to be hands-on everything. And then you have Roland Cook who worked in a jail. And so he's God's gift to corrections. And he comes in and he has that mentality of, well, this works and I don't want to hear anything but. So they start making you jump through hoops to make sure that this works no matter what. And it just makes staff exhausted. Yeah. And it also puts the uh, inmates at risk too, because you, you had these protocols that were put in place under the cert team and, you'd have inmates cutting on themselves and they couldn't get the cert team to respond fast <laughs> enough and they weren't trained as well. And it just made it dangerous for everybody. When you have a new director come in and he's like, Hey, we're going to do this now. We're going to do this now. And he, he or she does not understand the policies that are in place and has never worked for the agency. There are definitely periods where it's very frustrating. It's an exhausting process for staff. I know that the other thing that he did, that was a big fight against, and it's an issue I brought up, is for the longest time, you could go work in the prison. Now, it's not the best job. You could go work for law enforcement and have a lot more excitement and, and do a lot different things than working in a prison, where a lot of times it's very mundane. You go in for a shift, whether it be a swing shift, a day shift, or a night shift. And we worked 12-hour shifts, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., one or the other. Or you had various swing shifts or eight-hour day shifts. There was different shifts depending on the, the units. And then you have this, this guy that comes in, and it says, you're not going to stay on a particular post. 
more than three years. Oh, and, yes. And see, so you have these guys that know so much about corrections. They know those inmates. And these guys have worked for corrections for 30 years. They know a building inside and out. If there's a situation, they know what key to grab. They know exactly how to handle it. They've done it a million times over. Nope, we're not doing that anymore. You have to move every three years. And so you have all these old time guys with hundreds of years of experience. And they said, I'm not going to go work some unit that I have to run around because you're telling me I can't work in this unit I know. It's like, well, mm -hmm. you got to, or you're going to face discipline. And so you have all these people with so many years of experience and they all retire. Yeah. And they even did that at APMP that you, if you were on uh, a task force, you had a limited time. And most of the time when you're on a task force, it takes, you know, two years to get to know where you're really proficient in that job. And they're now saying, oh, you got three years and you're rotated out. And it's <laughs> like you're wasting the government's time because they're training you. And then you're finally up to speed and doing everything. You're leading everything. And now you're only there for another year and, and someone new that's coming in. You know, and so. I, I understand the concept of the reason that you have a rotation where you move somebody to a different post. A, you get them cross-trained so they can work mm -hmm. in max, they can work in women's, they can work in mental health. I understand that. You also yeah. have officers that get too comfortable with a particular set of inmates. Yeah, and they, 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 they talked about it as com complacency. Like, uh, you can, you're going to have inmates that take advantage of these officers. Mm -hmm. So they had some good points, but also you had to look at, hey, you got to staff this prison. You're going to, your morale is going down so low that you're not going to be able to staff this prison. I understand you get somebody that becomes lackadaisical or complacent. And that's that guy that's worked for corrections for two years. He might buddy buddy up with an inmate. He, he gets taken. But when you have people like Ed Steele, the guy's a fucking rock, man. Mm -hmm. And he goes in there and he has no problem telling an inmate to go fuck himself. And so mm -hmm. now you're going to tell him, well, we need you to go over here and work this uh, UNA5. And so you're going to run all day long. And you're also going to be on day shift because you've been on night. No, I'm not doing it. Yep. Personalities like that, where this guy is a resource. He knows so much about a building and he's probably going to be gone in another three years anyways. Let him finish his time. Nope. Nope. Can't do it. Nope. They shot themselves on the foot on, on a few policies. Yeah. And it trickled down because uh, they've now completed the new prison and they've transferred <laughs> all the inmates to the new prison and they don't have enough people to staff it. So they're, <laughs> on, they're on mandatory overtime shifts for every department of corrections employee that's certified. So APMP is doing mandatory shifts out there. Really? So, yeah. Everybody's doing so a minimum of um one shift a month but they i just heard that they're going to increase that to one shift a pay period so, so for everybody yeah so just because they're so short and they're talking about having an emergency legislative session to deal with that but that hasn't come out that they're going to do it yet but there's talk that they could be doing that wow because they're in such dire straits because no one wants to go to corrections because they can make $10 an hour more working in the streets. Working Amazon. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> even that. You can make more working for Amazon. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, right now you got people at McDonald's working 17 bucks an hour in Utah. Oh, so, my God. So, you know, you're starting out at 21 an hour for corrections as uh, to work out at the prison. I think uh, it would be a little easier just to go work at McDonald's for a couple of bucks less. Uh, the only thing that I've got really to talk about uh, before we close out our session tonight, Vaughn, is Mike Haddon, I guess. Did he take over for? Um... He did for a short period after Roland Cook. And I have I kind of washed myself of corrections for a while. Mm -hmm. So I have no idea how, how he did on the uh, director's position. 
because so, I was pretty much burnt. So everything that happened with me and um, Haddon kind of came into the department, I believe, during the period of Patterson. Haddon always seemed like a fairly nice man. Yeah, I, I really liked Haddon. Um, yeah. I worked well with him. I had some other positions, not positions, other assignments with APMB where I had to work with him, and it was great to work with. I had um, one interaction that I want to tell you about, and this would be, um, I'm looking at a Utah Highway Patrol accident information form, and it's dated December 16th, 2010, and it's at 18.15 p.m., 8300 South, I-15 northbound. And so I was sitting on I-15 right before the 215 exit. Mm -hmm. And there's a massive accident up ahead and all of I-15 is shut down. The guy behind me is not paying attention. I don't know what he's doing. And he takes his foot off the brake and he bumps me. So I get out of the car and I walk back. It's a red BMW. And I'm going to just read off this, this owner information of this vehicle. Mike Haddon was who was sitting behind the wheel of that car. All the things that happened to me, Mike Haddon accidentally bumped me on the freeway. Did you know that, Vaughn? I did not know that. I Yes. I, I thought you were talking about a time. I think you responded to an accident up at uh, the point of the mountain, and you kind of yeah. got in trouble for doing something up there because they didn't like that you went off property or something. I don't know what it was, but I, I thought that might have been you that um, maybe you were telling me the story. So that, yeah. I thought that was the one that you're referring to, but I didn't no, know you ever had an, he, uh, he bumped. Me. Yeah. And so the law in Utah was that any two cars come in contact on public streets, you have to call the highway patrol. So when I walk back and I look in the, the driver's window and I see Mike Haddon, I'm like, it was almost a twilight zone moment. Cause I'm like, wait a minute. I know you. And you're part of that administration that hates my guts. Mm -hmm. And now you just bumped me. And so I said, well, I'll go back to my car. I'll call Highway Patrol. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, whatever you need to do, whatever you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I go back. We pull over. We wait till Highway Patrol comes. He makes me uh, and him both fill out this information to exchange. I've got both copies. I got my copy that was given to him and then his copy. Yeah. But I said to myself, don't ever lose that because at some point <laughs> you're going to be in a podcast talking about an administration that hated your guts in Utah. And here tonight, I'm actually referring to this forum and I will still hold on to it. <laughs> I don't know hey, for whatever reason. Hey, now you can say, hey, I got bumped by Mike Haddon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I got rear-ended by Mike. Yeah, there you go. And I he, got rear-ended. He, he didn't uh, even give me a reach around. Yeah. Now, it's funny because he was only going one mile per hour. Uh, <laughs> so he probably did that for the insurance like oh i was only going one so he doesn't yeah. get whip, whiplash so mm -hmm. but uh is there any other thing that you wanted to bring up or sum up about surviving different administrations or some advice maybe for no. somebody that chooses so this career if you get in this career i don't care which union it is you've got to get involved because one you're either going to have get sued by somebody or you're going to have problems with administration or you are going to have something where either you do something that you think is right and it is right, but the administration doesn't like it and you're going to need someone to represent you. So I don't care who it is, get it, get involved in a union. I used to be anti-union until I got into law enforcement. Now I'm like, it's the best thing out there. Absolutely. Get involved. And if you don't like where your union's going, get involved and help change the direction of it. Yeah, definitely get very so. involved. Yeah, I think that's great advice. No matter where you are, you really need representation because government has endless amount of coffers and funds mm -hmm. and they can make your life a living hell. And I've seen it. Even though you are have the best intent and you're trying to do the right thing, you can go through hell. And, and it is a very political game. It's yes. a very political game. And the, the more it goes, the more political it gets. You need to get politically involved because it's involved in everything. Absolutely. I did not, right. uh, you know, I, I joined in 97 and it wasn't until 2007. I did half my career before I really had any s sincere interaction with an administration. 
Yeah, that's about the same with me. Yeah. So T times are changing, and so be safe out there for sure. But, and if you choose corrections, it's a roller coaster. Be safe, but protect yourself. Yep. And uh, I, I, lo I love my job. I'd do it again. So um, I wouldn't change anything about going into corrections. So I would say the first 10 years, Vaughn, I would say I would do that anytime, anytime. The mark with, uh, with Patterson, it's just, it really felt like a job. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I moved around so much is, is cause I, I got bored too easy. So I moved that, around. That's a good call. Good call. So. All right. Well, this has been the Gay Florida Man, episode 14. Thank you so much, Vaughn, for joining us for this roller coaster of a ride. And I have to apologize. I'm not as funny as the other, the last shows that I've <laughs> I've listened to. So we'll have to do it again. And I can tell some other stories where I can uh, not be so guarded. <laughs> no, I no, absolutely. I, uh, I'd love to have you back on where you can open up because we really do need to do an episode about adult probation and parole. I haven't really broach that subject as of yet all right let's well, do it keep in touch all right so this has been the gay florida man and i'm going to leave you with this be good and if you can't be good be good at it if you're on probation on parole or sitting in prison you're not good at it good night everybody mm -hmm.